Read about the Northern Wrestling Federation in the book presented by Russellville.com, The The Pro Pro Wrestling Wrestling Fault, Volume 2. Hear the story of Roger Ruffin, the man who trained Carl Anderson, Anderson, the Monster Abyss, Jordan Clearwater, Chris Harrison, Jillian Hall. Plus 45 other short stories including Jazz, Bobby Eaton, Kamala, Thunder Rosa, Mario Mancini, Scott Casey, PJ Black, Carrie Morton, Sal Renaro, Jeremiah Plunkett, Colby Carino, Bam Bam Malone, and many others. Get your book today at Russellville.com. Russellville. It's where wrestling lives. Are you a fan of pro wrestling, comedy, and combat sports? Then we have the podcast for you, because we cover that and much, much more. Do you like to debate with your friends? Do we have the perfect segment for you? It's the 531, where we take any given subject, break it down to a top five. From there, we debate it down to three, and then into that number one spot. If you want to get a hold of us, find us on our social media. Search Working Fans Podcast on any major social media platform. And if you want to find the podcast, search for us on any major podcast platform as well as YouTube. Working Fans Podcast. We put in the work so you don't have to. Fans, welcome back for a very special interview. We are brought to you by the Pro Wrestling Vault, Volume 2, written by Vinnie Barry, available at WrestleVille.com. All the following books, as always, are available on Amazon, and those are Pade Du, written by friend of the show, Kevin Kelton. All That's Left, written by friend of the show, Ward Anderson. Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, written by Brian R. Solomon. How Not to Suck at Comedy by Pat Oates. Matt Memories by John Arezzi and Greg Oliver. And today, we are adding another author and wrestler to the list. He is the author of Uncontrolled Chaos, Canada's remarkable professional wrestling legacy. He is the heat seeker. And I'm going to file a complaint with Cage Match. If Mr. Beefy Goodness isn't one of his nicknames, welcome Vance Nevada. Vance, how are you doing today? Doing great, Joe. I'm glad to be here. Hey, we're glad to have you. And usually, you know, with a wrestler or anybody in the wrestling kind of scope, we ask where your fandom started. But I'm going to jump right to the book because I've since I've saw you start talking about it and since it's come out, I'm just interested in it. What made you decide to write about Canadian wrestling? You know, what? I, I think as a kid, you know, I got very interested in wrestling. And I remember, you know, going to my school library and, you know, asking, what books do we have on wrestling? And there was maybe like an eight page photo book of WWF superstars from like the 80s, or you'd have like a book on amateur wrestling, but there was nothing, you know, for a kid that wanted to learn it. And so when I got into wrestling very early on, I got sort of bit by the, you know, the history bug and wanted to know everything that there was to know about initially the Winnipeg wrestling scene in Manitoba. And then it just kind of snowballed where eventually it was just like this massive collection initially of results, just sort of tracking the whole history of the sport in Canada from about 1867 until the present. Now your first book wrestling in the Canadian West, was that kind of the section of Canada that you started writing about? And then you just wanted to go to the country as a whole? Yeah, you know, whenever you're writing, you know, the the advice you get is write what you know. And for, you know, the majority of my career, I've spent in, in the western half of the country and, you know, knew it, you know, the, the subject matter intimately. But it also 
traveled to so many of those cities, it was easy for me to do the history because I would piggyback my wrestling bookings with opportunities for research. So if I knew, for example, that I needed to be in Calgary, Alberta at five o'clock on Friday, I would show up at noon on Friday and go hit the archives or the library and a few hours of research before I had to get to the matches that night. So wrestling in the Canadian West was a great foundational piece, but you know, there's been so much history. I mean, there's been some books on Montreal that Pat LaPrat and Bertrand Hebert have put out a lot of stuff, including Mad Dogs, Midgets, and Screwjobs, which was a great you know, encapsulation of, of the Quebec scene, but there hadn't been really anything on the whole of Ontario and there's been nothing really published on the Maritimes, the East Coast. So it was, you know, a great opportunity, especially during the pandemic shutdown to there's nowhere to go and nowhere else to be. So there's no distractions from having time to do this project. When we talked to Brian R. Solomon about doing the Chic book, he said without the pandemic, it would have taken so much longer because he wouldn't have had that time to put into the research or to deep dive a specific question to get an answer on. So the pandemic really did help with the making the book better, you think? I think so. You know, there's so many projects that you get into it, you know, and especially as a married guy where you would dive into something for the whole weekend and your wife is like, well, why aren't we going out somewhere? Well, there's nowhere to go. Yeah, <laughs> You know, the restaurants are closed. The malls are closed. There's no place to be. So binge watch some, some Netflix. But after that, I need to go do something creative. Are you a fan of the research or is it something that you kind of have to cite yourself up for and it's maybe more of a chore? I think you know, when you, once you've gotten started that, I mean, originally I was, uh, I've always been really fascinated by it. I'd say it's like putting together a big puzzle. So if you were, I'd say 10 years ago when you were trying to find out, you know, the history of say Stampede Wrestling in Calgary, any results that you would find were just for the city of Calgary. And you'd say, okay, well, we've got kind of a snapshot of who is in the territory. But when you could start to build what the whole schedule looked like for a wrestler that was there at that time, where you can put together the whole week and identify, yeah, Friday night was Calgary, Saturday night was Edmonton, Monday night was Lethbridge, Tuesday night was Red Deer, Wednesday, Saskatoon, Thursday, Regina, and really able to paint the picture of what it was like to be a wrestler in that era of wrestling. Unlike today, where primarily the independents are Friday and Saturday nights, you know, what was it like to be a full-time wrestler? So to be able to put together those, those pieces. And so you've got a pretty complete picture of, you know, what was it like on Stampede Wrestling? What was the Vancouver circuit? What, you know, what was it like in Toronto? You know, you just, you find it's very addictive and especially now with social media and so many groups, I find myself looking where you see like a card result and you're like, oh, maybe that's something new that I don't have. But now I've done so much that a lot of the research that I find online is stuff that people have stolen from me and reprinted because the format that I use is pretty distinct. So I'm like, oh, that's just my stuff. <laughs> We're not finding out anything new today. Now, does it feel good to be looked at as a source or is it more frustrating seeing your work kind of piggybacked off of? I think it's... Uh, I think there's definitely a lot of historians that are very protective of what they've put together. But for me, I'm just glad that the information is out there. So there's a lot of stuff that would never have seen the light of day where now we have a conversation where more people are aware of, you know, those sort of workhorses, those journeymen from the territory era that came out of Canada, like Moose Murawski or the Von Steiger brothers or Bulldog Bob Brown, that they can find that information where 10 years ago it didn't exist. In the course of research, is there a piece of information that you were most surprised to come across? Or like you said, is it just 
putting the puzzle together and it's you're just happy in the end when you can get some kind of complete picture of what you're looking at. I think it's you know one of the things that comes up is and and as I say this I'm looking at a picture of Roddy Piper that I have on my office wall here. So Roddy Piper was, you know, a guy that I idolized early on, especially when I found out that wait a minute, he's not from Glasgow, Scotland, he's from Winnipeg, Manitoba, and that's where he got his start. And he was a smaller guy, you know, he was 5'10", 5'11", and 220 pounds. But he went on to headline WrestleMania. The very first WrestleMania was a kid from Winnipeg. That's very exciting. So in the process, I think one of the interesting parts is sometimes you find yourself debunking these long-held myths. You know, for example, Roddy Piper has always said that his debut match was at Winnipeg Arena against Larry the Axe Henning, and it was the shortest match in Winnipeg Arena history. He lasted nine seconds with Larry Henning. It's true, that match happened, but it wasn't his pro debut. His pro debut was a year and a half earlier in a Winnipeg Community Center against Tony Candelo. But even if you say, well, maybe he wasn't including the Indies, it wasn't even his first match for the AWA. His first AWA match was actually against Ric Flair. Wow. Uh, you know, long before Larry Henning match, but you know, the Larry Henning match is a much more colorful story. So, you know, you can understand why it's been told and retold. And I don't think that Roddy was deliberately misleading people. I think that just over the course of his career, he forgot. Uh, So, you know, to be able to actually put some fact behind some of these myths has been great. In some cases, we're supporting the story that's long been told in other cases you know we're we're breaking that down to say no that that never happened and you know sort of in addition to the to the wrestling book project i mean one of the things that i really enjoy to do it's kind of a guilty pleasure is debunking the myths of all of the pretenders out there who will tell a story about being wrestlers from canada when they weren't in fact uh there's a guy in in the pacific northwest i think he's in oregon who uh calls himself the super tramp and he he would always he he sort of got into the wrestling business in the states by saying oh yeah i wrestled for Stu hart in the 70s and no one could ever prove that he didn't they just feel like something seems really fishy about this guy and he would show up to you know comic cons and fan conventions and sign eight by tens you know wearing a mask he was a super tramp and he's this canadian wrestling legend and you know I was very glad to like debunk that to say, no, this isn't, this isn't, this guy never wrestled a day in his life. This is all fictitious, you know, and even tear apart his account where he says, well, I started for Stu in 1975 and my first opponent was Lumberjack Luke. Well, Lumberjack Luke wasn't even with Stu in 1975. So yeah. That's one of those things I enjoy about history because I've heard they've done it a couple times on the Jim Cornette show where his co-host will read a program and then based on the names, Jim is trying to guess where it happened. And there's just certain things, you know, that this guy was in this territory. Yeah. So he used to show up quite famously every year at the Cauliflower Alley Club in Las Vegas at the reunions every year until I started to show up and say, no, this guy has at all. So he doesn't come to Las Vegas anymore, surprisingly. And it's kind of important in the business, too. That's, I guess, another piece of protecting it is keeping that integrity to the people in the ring and showing that respect, not trying to make a name off something just because 
you can make a baseless claim that people could be like, eh, I, maybe it's possible, but they don't take him up on it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's enough wrestlers that, you know, are due some respect that have been long forgotten about. In Canada, one of the best of all time was a, was a wrestler named George Gordienko, who started in the 40s. And actually by 19 years old, he was already sort of being identified by promoters in the U.S. as a future world champ. This guy will be NWA world champion. And what happened for him, it was just kind of an unfortunate situation of timing that his name was Gordianko at a time when the U.S. government was trying to, you know, weed out all of the communists. So he got, you know, labeled as a commie and, you know, deported from the United States. So he went on to have a, you know, a, a fantastic career internationally. And he became a guy that you would use to build your territory. So someone like John De Silva would leave New Zealand, go to Europe for a year, sort of cut his teeth on the business. And when De Silva came back to New Zealand to set up the territory with himself as the man, George Gordienko was the guy that they would bring in the credibility to build De Silva to be the champ, to be the Hulk Hogan of the day. And Gordienko did this over and over and over. You know, most famously in 1971, he did it in Iraq with Adnan El Casey. And they wrestled wow. in, in Iraq. It was a one-match show. It wasn't like WrestleMania where you've got 12 matches. Gordienko versus El Casey in 1971 in Iraq drew over 100,000 for one match. And that's that guy I was so close to, you know, having a name that could have been fully recognized in the States. And that that's the time I've heard that name. You know, I yeah. like to think that I look a little bit more into history and try and stay aware of, you know, like a generation, two generations before. And that's sad yeah. that he'd be lost to time like that. It is. It, in, and so that was, you know, sort of one of the reasons that I really wanted to book a lot of times now, because I'm still actively wrestling as well. And I'll be in a, in a locker room and realize that if I'm wrestling with a 25 year old kid or a 28 year old kid who's been a fan his whole life, his awareness of wrestling is nothing earlier than the year 2000. So for them, like classic wrestling is the Monday Night Wars. And I'm like, wow, man, like there's so much that you don't know. And it's really good because you see some of these young guys coming up, Canadian seed, that's what I'm familiar with. You know, young guys like Sean Gaston and, and Braden Goss and Cheetah Bear Jude Dawkins. And these guys are like really like students of the game where you'll see like, you know, you're expecting that frame of reference to be the last generation, the last 20 years. And they're, yeah. they're pulling out, hey, what about this thing that Johnny Valentine used to do? And you're like, all right, okay. And implementing some of that classic stuff into their repertoire now, it's really exciting to see. Yeah, that's one thing we found doing this podcast. Because when, when we started it, we just wanted to hear wrestling stories from across the landscape. Fans, referees, you know, people on the fringes of the business. And you get to hear so many great stories from even a guy like the guy we had a guy on that wrote the Lance Von Eric book. And sure. at first I was very, I was like, Lance Von Eric. All right. I mean that I remember, you know, you know, the Von Eric's, but yeah. then we get into the story and I'm like, I never would have heard of this had I not come across it here. So I yeah. love being able to hear those stories from different corners of wrestling. And that's what, attracted me to your book was just getting to find out about Canada being from the States. You know, the most I know about Canadian touring would be the Tony Condello death. Tour. Yeah. And you know, when you talk about the Maritimes, I only know 
that J.J. Dillon would make brief stops there. But then to hear that you're writing about it more in depth, that makes me that's what makes me want to get the book is to hear about all these places that I've only heard snippets of. Yeah, we really wanted to, you know, showcase the wrestlers but also be able to paint the picture for people, sort of say, hey, here's what the summer schedule on the Atlantic coast looked like, you know, Monday, Monday through Friday. So someone can, if they're interested enough, they can now pick up a map and look and say, oh, here was, here was, you know, what that week looked like to travel. And so we've done that, you know, from coast to coast. One of the things that we did with this book, and, and it added an extra six months to the development time of the book is we really tried to approach it from, you know, an encyclopedia slash almanac, you know, style of, of reporting. Because a lot of wrestling books I found, you know, they're anecdotal, but they don't often have the dates that back up the stories. And so the back section of the book includes a title history section of every championship ever recognized in Canada that I could find and run down, the, you know, all of the title reigns. So there's over 700 belts that are that are documented and then uh statistics section so statistically based on the collection of sixty thousand event results that i've compiled who were the most prolific 100 men women and tag teams canadian history the, the top 50 biggest draws of all time and then you know other stats like longest title reigns most title reigns you know canadians that have held the world title ranked by number of days that they were world champions so lots of other like facts and stats in there that you know find a find a place to to get them in there that's amazing especially for you know real wrestling nerds out there that want to go through that and just you mentioning that section i'm like oh that sells the book right there because you could have as many stories in there but then getting to read numbers and getting to see all that broken down is fascinating now you've been wrestling for a while i wanted to ask i found the name of your trainer but i don't know how to pronounce that last name sure i started when i was 17 years old and quite by fluke i I found a trainer his name was ernest rowe and he was a a, a tough old Frenchman from Southern Manitoba. And he was like a pipeline worker by trade. And when I wanted to get into wrestling, you know, what had actually happened was when I was in high school, we had a French teacher who was just sort of really wanted to get people, you know, to embrace French outside of French class. And so what he said to us was, if you watch the hockey game on TV on the French channel and tell me about it, that will count for credit. I thought, what a what a bullshit thing. Like, mm. yeah, I can put the French game on. It doesn't mean I understand anything they're saying. So... I came up with this idea. I said, well, what if we what if we staged a wrestling event and we did the commentary in French and all of the promos in French? And he was like, yeah, I like that idea. And so we were able to fund it as a school project. And I reached out and found Ernest Rowe, who had a wrestling ring, and we rented it from him. And we just did this, like, it was horrible, actually, if you watch the tape back. But just me and my high school buddies all had, like, a Royal Rumble. And it's really like telegraphed, whiffed punches and all kinds of things. But what 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 came of that was after we had done the project, you know, I called Ernest to give the ring back. And he said, oh, just keep it. I don't need it right now. And so I had a wrestling ring, you know, for the whole summer when I was 16 years old. Oh, wow. And yeah, and it was... You know, I just ended up like, you know, sort of more seriously backyard wrestling with my with my pals. And then we decided to stage a show. Ernest came up to watch the show and he was going to watch the show and then take his ring home. And when he watched it, he's like, uh, that was pretty brutal, guys. I'm not going to lie. 
but you know, you, some of you guys have a bit of a foundation there. So if you actually want to train to go pro, you know, give me a call. And uh, I took him up on it and a couple months later started to train. And Ernest Rowe in now in retrospect was not a very good trainer. You know, I learned, I think I paid him a hundred bucks and I learned three moves. And he goes, yeah, you're good enough. We'll uh, get you hooked up with some matches. So I learned uh, a hip toss, a headlock takedown, and a chop. And uh, I'll tell you, like, that's not enough wrestling knowledge to wrestle a match. But it was my foot in the door. And at that time, you know, early 90s, it was really kind of before the formation of these form formal wrestling schools. So it was more like mafia. Like you find somebody who will open the door for you. You get in the business. And then it's really like a, a learn-as-you-go apprenticeship on the road. So I would go into Winnipeg every couple of weeks for matches. We'd get there early at like 12 o'clock in the afternoon. We'd set up the ring, train for three hours, wrestle that night, tear down the ring and do it all again. You know, I was, I was telling the young guys now who have maybe gone to Lance Storm School or something like that, that had a really good formal foundation before they started. And I said, no, I would show up and they would say, oh, today in the match, you, you needed to be able to do a sunset flip. Do you know that move? No. Okay, well, we're going to do sunset flips for the next three hours. Uh, or you need to do a drop kick today. And it was just kind of like, we'll, we'll teach you as you go by what you need to know today. So much different than the way that wrestlers get trained now. But we really had, you know, a variety of influences because we had some guys that had wrestled the territories and had a lot of experience. Guys that wrestled internationally that were now kicking around. So Rick Patterson, who was Leatherface in IWA Japan. He was a Winnipeg guy. And so between trips of Mexico or Puerto Rico or Japan, he'd be in Winnipeg and he'd be like, hey, here's this new move they're doing in Japan. You should try this out. Or Eddie Watts would be Puerto Rico. Or we had a few guys that had been around a little bit. Wrestling was very transient at that time. So rather than having one trainer, I probably had 20 you know, influences in that first two or three years. If you had it all to do over again, would you learn like that again? Or would you go through the school route? Like, do you think learning like that helped you? I think it gave me a different appreciation for the industry because there were guys, you know, that were coming up. You know, I, I can think of, you know, there was a Winnipeg wrestler who wrestled as Bugsy Slug. <laughs> and he had uh, actually trained in the same class with the Heart Camp as Chris Jericho and Lance Storm. Oh, wow. So anytime you see a group shot of, you know, Chris Jericho and Lance Storm's training class, there he is, you know, big, heavy native guy, Paul Ranville out of Winnipeg. And, you know, he came back and he was pretty active, but it didn't feel like having that wrestling school foundation gave him any more respect you know it was almost you know some contempt from the local guys that oh here's this fancy guy who went to the heart school but that was that era i think if i had to do it over again i probably would have saved up the money and gone to a school like the hearts though just first of all for the credibility of the school in terms of being able to help open doors but also to have a stronger foundation in what i needed to know earlier on it would have been beneficial yeah i didn't want to go right to asking about the hearts because i feel like if you tell somebody you're a wrestler from canada that's got to be one of the first three questions you get so there was a want to go to the school that they do hold that kind of, you know, reverence up there. Absolutely. You know, if you are talking about wrestling families in Canada, there's only really three that are in the conversation, right? It's the Hearts in the West, it's the Rougeos in Montreal, and it's the Cormiers in, in the Maritimes. So Leo Burke and his brother. Getting back to the book, what is the process from like coming up with the idea to getting the finished product in your hands? How long does that take? 
And what is it like from start to finish? I imagine it's got to be a wave of emotion. Yeah, you know what? There's definitely you know points in time, and you'll hear this from people that have done independent films as well, where they go into the project very passionately, you know, and they do the the actual creation of the project, and then it's usually in that post production phase where you just reach breaking points where you're like, okay, I I give up. This this thing is done. For me, writing the book start to finish and, and compiling all the stats was about an 18 month process. And then you pass that on to a publisher and it's like handing over your baby. And you know, one of the first conversations that I had with my publisher was like heartbreaking because this book is 239,000 words. And so they first piece of feedback they gave me was, you know, typically books are 80,000 words. Yours is 239,000. It's basically your two thirds over, you know, what we would expect. So we need you to significantly cut this content. So that was the first hill to die on. And I said, no, I'm not cutting a single word, not a single syllable. This isn't a sit down and, and read over the course of an evening type novel. This is a history book. This is like the first reference of its kind like this, not just for Canadian wrestling, but for any wrestling. Because I've looked at a lot of other historical retrospectives of, of wrestling in you know, Australia. And I've got a whole bookshelf here of uh, American wrestling books as well. There's nothing like this. So, you know, they go through that process. Then you have like, you know, these battles back and forth with, with creative people that are publishing people, not wrestling around cover design concept, and, uh, which photos will be included and how many photos you can have. So it was about a four month process from start to finish with the publisher to get it to print. Then you, then you get there and get the book in hand and see it starting to do well on Amazon and at live events. And okay, okay, the journey was worth it. It's got to help to still be wrestling to be able to promote the book as you go out. Is the book doing what you expected when you released it? I think it's doing better than I thought. Uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, I did very consciously was I didn't want to to label it as, you know, the Canadian Professional Wrestling Almanac, uh, we'll think, oh, this is just a reference book. And I think, you know, in some cases, maybe that would have made it easier for people to understand what the book is versus uh, just being labeled Uncontrolled Chaos, where they think, oh, maybe that's maybe that's a memoir. So have, being able to have it at live wrestling events where you're engaged with a very passionate audience that's very loyal to their sport has been fantastic because then they can flip through. And once they start to see some of the pictures and some of the content, then it's an easy, easy sell for them to, to pick it up and take it. Nice. Do you have another book in you at this point or after writing this one, is it you want to take a break and kind of, you know, recalibrate? I think my wife would love it if I was ready to take a break, <laughs> but actually, you know, kind of similar in the way that when I was doing the initial results research back in the day where I would piggyback my travel opportunities with research opportunities, the, the same is happening now. So one of the, the, the next project that I'm looking at is doing Uncontrolled Chaos really is sort of the timeline history of Canadian professional wrestling. It tells the story of the entire sport, region by region, era by era. So if you had no familiarity at all with Canadian wrestling, you can pick up this book and have a solid awareness of the scene and some general awareness of some of the key players in terms of wrestlers and promoters that factor history. The next one, what I'd like to do is very similar to the concept of the WWE Encyclopedia where it's an illustrated directory of Canadian wrestlers that is like a most thorough deep dive into not just the top 10 or 15 or 20 stars, but here are the 2000 Canadian professional wrestlers that I think I'm about 1700 names into that list. 
as I'm assembling it, but as I'm going out and doing these book signings at different wrestling shows and getting a chance to interact with different wrestlers from different regions of the country, I've got my Excel spreadsheet with the list for the next book on hand to say, hey, I'm getting a chance to meet you, uh, Rip Impact. What is your real name and what is your birth date and what's your height and weight? Which, you know, would seem odd in any other circumstance in any other industry, but in professional wrestling, you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm very willing to tell you all these things that would make me uh, susceptible to identity theft. It's going to mean I'm going to get some press. Yeah, it's always that importance of being able to, you know, get out about these wrestlers with the pro wrestling vault that I mentioned at the top of the show. What Vinny Barry's done there, he just puts a bunch of short stories with wrestlers together. And it's yeah. nice that you get to see that bit of them so that you're compiling this and making people familiar with wrestlers they might not otherwise know and getting like this historical volume together is very interesting yeah so it's going to be a monster of a project i would say probably more on layout and design uh the writing itself but uh i think a very important project and i think the two books you know really complement each other well where one is a book about the wrestlers and one is a book about wrestling put them together and you've got a pretty like front to back complete picture of the whole scene now that's awesome you've been very generous with your time before we get to promoting what you want to promote can you talk real quick about wrestling historians that you look towards that you admire and you know just the wrestling history scene as a whole because whenever i hear people that are deep into wrestling history talk you can hear the seriousness and the knowledge with which they talk about and like especially with you dropping bunches of names that i'm like i have to look that up that man sounds interesting who were some historians that inspire you you know i think it, it's actually a pretty small group you know the real diehards and we had you know for a period of time a, a collective because what i found is you might have a guy whose whole specialty is california wrestling uh, and then you got another guy who's yeah you know what mike rogers in the northwest he's all about you know the Don Owens territory and everybody that worked in Oregon and Washington state. And then, you, you know, you've got all these guys that are geographically doing their thing. So before I did my last book, I actually had reached out to all of these guys by email and said, Hey, we're all doing our own thing. Wouldn't it be better if we could kind of pool our resources a little bit and then at least have this one repository of information. So if we're doing a wrestler's career history, you know, we've got, a, we've got the files at hand. And so we created this, you know, wrestling history collective, and there was only about 24 historians. And what we would do is everybody would send me the stuff. I would put it into, uh, at that time, this is before external hard drives were really accessible. So it was burn it to like eight CDs and then mail it back out to everybody. So they had the results files and the career record files and the photo files. But, you know, some of the guys that have done tremendous work, you know, Scott Teal in Tennessee, who published wrestling in the Canadian West, and he's done a number of great wrestling books. He's just a guy that is so passionate about professional wrestling in the classic era. You know, it, it's, you know, he'll tell you himself, you know, like it'd be great to make some money, but really it's the, about the importance of preserving the history for, you know, he's definitely one Pat LaPrade and Bertrand Hebert for Quebec. They've done some great stuff. You know, Jim Melby, Burt Ray in the fifties and sixties, the stuff that they were doing long before the internet, you know, where they were collecting information like by mail, 
you know, exchanging stuff with other collectors and serious wrestling fans and then compiling it. And so when they were doing like career records and print newsletters in the 60s and 50s with results and things like that, it was really like way ahead of its time. And it's so important to the foundational work. And then the other guy is the late J. Michael Kenyon. If you're talking to historians, like he was sort of like the grand poobah of, of wrestling history where we would transcribe, you know, newspaper articles about wrestling and you know, from, from all areas. Us. So there's a few guys out there that they're just remarkable in, in what they've done and, and what they continue to do. I love hearing all those names now. Thank you for joining us today. We have included the link for the book in the description, but plug anything you'd like to plug before we get out of here. Yeah, absolutely. You can find the book e most easily on Amazon, uh, Uncontrolled Chaos, and it's available in hardcover, paperback, and Kindle editions. And it's been very well received, and uh, and I hope uh, folks pick it up and uh, and dig into some of the great stuff that's happening in Canadian wrestling. Yeah, if you've got a wrestling fan in your life, we're right in that Christmas season. Get it in enough time to get it under the tree, because I think any real fan of wrestling if you love this book. Oh, we have a question here, actually, before we get out. My co-host, it's his birthday today. So what are some of your favorite wrestling books? I didn't even think to ask that. Yeah, you know, in terms of biographies, one of my favorites is uh, Freddie Blassie. We've got it here. Of course, now that I've said that, I won't find it. But <laughs> Freddie, Bla Freddie Blassie's biography is, uh, is really great. Uh, I've just finished reading the new John Crowther book, Blood, Sweat, and Shears, The Bushwhackers Story. Oh, I saw that was out. I've been wanting to check that out. How was that? It's fantastic. It is, I would say, a lot of times the wrestling books that you see maybe produced by the WWE are very curated, very, very cleaned up. Whereas with the Bushwhackers book, like, it's very candid and whether they're talking about you know uh some of the crazy things that happened on the road or backstage or uh, drug use or things like that it's very very honest so it really stands out in terms of how refreshing it is jj dillon's book really really enjoyed really i think i've i've found that you know if you're if you're reading wrestling biographies i'm most interested in the people that are telling their story about the path they took before they got to the top and at the point when they're like, and then at that point I debuted for the WWE. Okay. I'm not really interested in the rest of that stuff because I've seen that all on TV. Like I know the journey there, right? We've seen all of that content on the internet already, but you know, starting out in those high school gyms on some independent show and all the steps that it took for them to get to the top. Those are the, those are the kinds of stories that I like to see. Yeah. For me, it's the interesting opportunities that led to something more. Sometimes it's, I talked to somebody that knew somebody that introduced me to, and then that's how they get trained or that's how they get their first foot in the business. So those are the stories that are more interesting rather than, because I, I hear what you're saying, the WWE books, they do serve a purpose, but it almost feels like in a way it's that narrative being told, not, yes. not like the real true story of what they went through to get there. It's kind of the, the difference between, you know, if you've, if you've read Bret Hart's book, you know, my real life in the cartoon world of wrestling, you know, it's written very candidly and honestly as someone that doesn't have a corporate master to serve versus fabulous Moolah's book where definitely there's a lot of color that has been left out of that story. So kind of weigh one against the other. Yeah, like I remember when I read the Bob Backlund book, the way he talked about 
working for Vince's dad and just the details that he gave in, you know, I knew I was getting the title from this time to this time. This is what they had planned. That was interesting to me as opposed to, I forget, I did read the Moolah book, not before, not too long before that. And it not a terrible book, but you know, there's more to the story and you kind of, as a reader, you start looking between the lines like, oh, what is, you know, what was really going on here that they felt they had to omit or clean? Yeah, absolutely. Well, once again, Vance, thank you for joining us. And viewers, if you're out there, go on Amazon, get Uncontrolled Chaos. We want to take a minute to thank our newest sponsor on the show, 482 Designs. That is F-O-U-R, the number is 82designs, 482designs. You can find them on Facebook by looking up F-O-U-R, 82designs, at F-O-U-R, 82designs on Instagram. And if you want to email them, go to F-O-U-R, 82designs at gmail.com. Pretty soon, we're going to be rolling out some high-quality T-shirts and stickers that were just done by the sponsor. Please check them out for any of your screen printing needs. First off, it's light years better than our first one. Also, like, divide the washer and dryer. They look good, and they're good quality. Nice. And those stickers before Paco chewed them up were amazing. And luckily, we'll be getting some more in, hopefully, before we start selling them to fans. But that's F-O-U-R-8-2 Designs. Welcome back for episode 175 of the Working Fans Podcast. As always, we are brought to you by the Pro Wrestling Vault, Volume 2, written by Vinnie Barry, available at WrestleVille.com. All the following books I'm going to list off are available on Amazon.com, including... Pate de written by friend of the show, Kevin Kelton. All That's Left, written by Ward Anderson. Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, written by Brian R. Solomon. How Not to Suck at Comedy, by Pat Oates. Matt Memories, by Greg Oliver and John Arezzi. And as you heard this week, Uncontrolled Chaos, Canada's remarkable professional wrestling legacy, written by Vance Nevada. If you're an artist in the Connecticut area and looking for studio time, check out the great people over at Connecticut People Records. If you want to see New Heights Wrestling invade Fright Nights, go check out New Heights Wrestling on YouTube. And since Genie Gem is on vacation, I got the man called Dave to help me host. That's an insight. Genie, where are you at, bitch? <laughs> we got a show to do, girl. Don't <laughs> be hiding on us. <laughs> Now, we got to explain why we're in shirts and ties. We are actually doing a little New Heights wrestling business. We're filming some intros. And before we get into it, I just I I want to have a moment with Dave. We love being a part of New Heights wrestling. And sometimes we really we got to fit in these recordings when we can. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it's a busy couple days for us. A busy day in particular today. We got. A big interview coming at 2 o'clock as we record this with Wei Ting and Andrew Thompson of Post Wrestling. And we're doing a special 531. And we're trying to fit these recording intros in there for our lovely commentary position we have with New Heights Wrestling. And we're still bringing you a show. Joe just found out that AJ wasn't going to be out here before we came. And yeah, man, we're busy, but we're here. We love it. We got passion and we bring it. We bring it to that ass every day. Let's go, baby. And I also want to say if you're in the Connecticut area tomorrow night, Strange Brew Pub, Norwich, 8 p.m. Hip hop for the homeless. Guys, go down, get a shirt. Our logo's on the back of it and you can help a worthy cause. Enemy the Illist is going to be in Norwich. Former guest of the show, Camouflage, is going to be in Norwich. 
Strife bringing chaos is going to be there. Swavsky is going to be performing. It is a huge night, and I can't wait for it, even though there is so much work ahead of us before that. I don't think AJ Strange Brew will be there, just so you know. Come on, he's not here. He's definitely not going to be there. Last week, we talked about 1985, kind of went over the timeline, and I, from the Mothership Facebook group, Got some really good fan responses. So I yeah. asked people what their favorite moments of 1985 were. Dan Titus says being nine years old and staying up until 1 a.m. watching Hulk and Andre versus Stud and Bundy on Saturday night's main event. Jamie Hama responded with Saturday night's main event was a huge deal. I was in second grade in 85. So asking to stay up late to see it was just as big an event as the show itself. So true. Yeah. That was the same for me. Just getting to be up that late. Like when he said one o'clock too, it's funny. I think it started like around 1130, but there were sometimes it would show a little later because they might've had like a, a sports event or something on, or he was, but sometimes it would just wrap up. They'd get started a little later. And I remember like, Oh, yeah. My parents be like, that wrestling, it's not starting yet, Dave. And I'm like, it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> like, it was so important to me. I just didn't want to, like, miss it. You know, like, we were going to get really big matches. And we did. And I stayed up late. I'm sure I didn't go to bed till like, 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. Saturday night's main event was, I believe, a summer replacement for weeks when Saturday Night Live wasn't on the air. So getting that late night time slot just made it that much bigger. Chris Zauha from the Mothership Facebook group said the build-up to Starcade, Hulkamania, Piper, discovering the magazines, and the AWA in general. And it was in the mid-80s that the magazines really kind of started to take off more and got popular. You had Pro Wrestling Illustrated. What are some other magazines that were out there? I want to say The Wrestler was one, but I don't. it wasn't one that I regularly read. I'm trying to remember. Uh, I want to say Inside Wrestling. They had people. Wrestling Illustrated had one one time. I don't remember the name of it, but it was like dedicated to heels. It was like the bad guys magazines. And they had like they had their bad guy writers, you know, and characters or whatever. And that stuck out to me. But there was also something like called the world of wrestling or wrestling. It was like done more like like I think AJ talked about this a little bit last week, too, where they had like real actual behind the scenes stories and not like the kayfabe ones we'd get with pro wrestling illustrated and this wasn't a magazine but just one other thing i want to point this out too mike mooneyham a name i'm sure you're familiar with joe you probably heard over the years who was a guy who wrote about wrestling i remember being a kid and finding his articles this is going a little bit later like late 80s 90s and seeing him write articles about wrestling and talking about real life things that were happening behind the scenes and i was just blown away that stuff yeah i feel like the 80s and 90s were almost the golden age of wrestling magazines where there were multiples out there and you even had wwf wcw kind of get into their own magazine game jamie hammer's best moment of 1985 was a moment we discussed last week terry funk beating up mel phillips (laughs) i sure hope he threw some potato dan titus responded with I'd think that was a given with Funk. Yeah. That is both not surprising from him and also maybe he, you know. Yeah, Terry, I'm sure, uh, laid it into Mel. (laughs) Bill Shepard has like a real personal memory, and it's not even anything specific. It was watching it with my great-grandpa. I don't remember 85, but every Saturday and Sunday until he passed in his 90s, I watched wrestling. And that is something that, I mean, I never... 
I never had that because my parents just weren't into wrestling. But uh, a lot of people have that connection where whether it's a grandparent, aunt or uncle that they would just sit with and watch wrestling. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, a special memory in itself. I started watching it out by myself. You know, maybe it was a parent or my brother. Eventually it was just me and my brother and he moved out. And then in the late 80s, 90s, it was me and my mom. Like, I got her to watch it. She was home more around that time then, and that was it. We'd watch wrestling up until whenever I moved out. <laughs> That's it. I was probably like 17 years, 18 years old, watching wrestling with his mama. Nice. Now, William Merriweather said, Piper on MTV and cartoon specials, random wrestlers from other territories that came to New York for a cup of coffee. And that was one thing we did see in the 80s, like when Terry Funk came into WWF, when Ric Flair in the 90s, but a lot of these guys that were popular elsewhere would make appearances, Junkyard Dog, go down the list. I will, the fabulous Freebirds who only showed up one time, but the first time I ever saw the Freebirds, ironically, was in WWF. Like, they had a match. I was blown away by what I was seeing. These guys in these fancy robes, Michael Hayes with that long blonde hair. And then it just disappeared. And then I heard about they were in Texas and wrestling for a motion called World Class. And then I would eventually see them again when I got led. And at Mid-South, actually Mid-South UWF was when I would see them again the next time. Yes. Ryan Damon's favorite moment of 85 was WrestleMania. Kind of hard to argue with there. Tarika Min had this to say my introduction to the awa and international wrestling from montreal so he must be farther north i would say what that chicago minnesota area and he said hulkamania bundy's attack on andre at the maple leaf garden oh yeah yeah bundy attack and andre was a big deal you know just set up bundy as eventually the following year he was going to be that guy to challenge uh, hulk hogan they were building him up as a monster in 85. And that's when the WWF was really good at just building up these monsters to put up against Hogan. And th that really is a golden age of wrestling, if you look back on it. Steve Ginarelli had the debut of Saturday Night's main event, Terry Funk's WWF debut, and Piper Bruno feuds. Okay, I remember this partially. They had a match, I want to say, like in the Boston Garden at the time that uh, might have made it on one of the Coliseum videos or primetime wrestling. But uh, that's interesting. I never would have thought of that as like, you know, a long term feud. Bruno would get involved once in a while. Like, I remember what people don't talk about when they did the Ricky Steamboat angle, which was, again, that would have been a few years down the road in WrestleMania 3, but where they did the angle where Savage dropped the bell on his throat and everything. Like, Bruno was interviewing him in the back, and Bruno just kind of lost it in the middle of it. Like, you piece of garbage, you go to Venice Green, and he started choking Randy, and they had to, like, you know, try to break him up. So that would happen from time to time. That's interesting. That was one of his memories, though. Yeah, now Michael Campbell has the whole saga of Flair DiBiase Murdoch from Mid-South wow. and the Waller-Dundee tag team implosion from the 1019 show. I'm jealous that he remembers that stuff. I was, I did not get to see that stuff, So, but that sounds awesome. I, I was talking to AJ before the show, and he says he remembers distinctly sitting in front of his TV and just being amazed at the Flair DiBiase. I'm not going to get into it. He was more specific. We'll leave yeah. that out. Now, Sean yeah. McKinney... Yeah. 
said he went and saw Flair versus Wahoo at the Bayfront Center in St. To be able to see wrestling in the 80s and especially like a Flair match, just an NWA style match in Florida, I'm guessing. That has to be. I know. I always wanted to go, especially when I lived in south part of Jersey for a little while. And I remember they would advertise those cards for like the Meadowlands. And I was like, oh, that's, you know, we live. My parents like driving because New Jersey was like a bigger state. So it was a couple hours long to get through. But I remember like I'd hear those matches like Ric Flair was going to wrestle Sergeant Slaughter or Ric Flair was going to wrestle Ricky Steamboat, you know, and it was like these were just matches like I went and they actually had it like in the newspaper again, too. I remember reading about the results were in the paper. You know, I was like, oh, man, what a time. Like, I had no idea how special this was, you know. Yes. Now, the last comment I have here, it's from the Mothership Facebook group. But it's from John McAdam, who has his own podcast, Stick to Wrestling, and listen to these memories. There is a list of them. Gino and Hernandez and Chris Adams destroying the car. Kevin Von Erich had just won. Wow. David Crockett screaming, she likes it, as Magnum Tia forces <laughs> a kiss upon yeah. Baby Doll. Oh, yeah. Andre the Giant roughing up Vince McMahon on TNT. Gino Hernandez tying David Manning up in the ropes and cutting his hair. Mm. baby doll becoming dusty Rhodes's valet for 30 days but she escapes by riding off on nelson royal's horse magnum ta finally getting caught by himself and taking a dressing room beating after multiple warnings from arn anderson <laughs> the best dressed man in mid-south storyline and bill dundee rolling pennies to the memphis studio crowd as a christmas gesture now just to have one of those memories would be amazing. But to remember so many things so vividly, that has to be a time. Like, think, some people's vivid memories are going to be Seth Rollins' laugh. Yeah, no. I can't remember it was 84, 85, but when he talked about David Crockett, she likes it. She likes it. I was thinking about Andre the Giant when they were cutting his hair. It was Ken Patera and Big John Studd. And I remember my dad... <laughs> disgusted because they kept saying they're raping this man they're raping this man out of his dignity and, and Vince just he would have pauses they're raping this man of his dignity and I just remember I go back and I'm like I didn't know as a kid I'm like I, but I remember my I didn't know what that was but I remember my dad going this fucking asshole this bullshit <laughs> I'm walking away I'm like what's this problem <laughs> they're cutting Andre's hair you asshole <laughs> Now, we're going to get to some Pro Wrestling Illustrated rankings from 1985. And can you guess who the top wrestler in 85? Oh, well, I don't have it in front of me. So, uh, sorry, AJ. I did do my homework. <laughs> the top wrestler in 85. I bet you it's going to be Flair if it's the magazines. Because I, I would think it'd be Hogan, but it'd be Flair. Yeah. It 100% is Flair. Hogan is number four. <laughs> wow. So whoever the AWA champ is at that time, I don't know if it's Stan Hansen or Martell yet. I'm guessing they're number two or three. Martell is number two. Okay. Who would, wait, who the fuck? Okay. So Flair Martell, what promotion would have got the next one? Jerry Lawler? Lawler doesn't even make the list. Okay. Who, what promotion? What, what title? You're going to want to think Southern United States. I'm thinking Florida. Okay, Southwest. Southwest. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. God. I, I See, if AJ were in this discussion, he wouldn't even have a leg to stand in. <laughs> Wait, what, what promotion is this? It's Eric's number three. Is it? What, yeah. what title is it? Was, this wasn't world class yet, right? Because they have to break off. They're part of the NWA. Unless they're counting that Texas 
world title or whatever it is, I guess, the North American or. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure. But to round out the top 10, okay. uh, I'm going to give you five through nine and then we'll see if you can guess 10. Okay. So number five is Dusty Rhodes. Six sure. is Jimmy Garvin. Seven <laughs> is Sergeant Slaughter. Eight, Wahoo McDaniel. Nine, Greg Valentine. Wow. Who made the 10? Andre? Roddy Piper? Ronnie Garvin. Wow. <laughs> Not a guess that either. Yeah, it's such a weird mix. Let's go to tag teams because okay, you you would think this would be easier, but this there's quite a variety of teams. All right, one of the first teams coming to my mind would be the Rock and Roll Express. They are number five. Okay, so the Road Warriors. Road Warriors are number one. Okay, the British Bulldogs. The British Bulldogs are not on this list. Wow. Oh, wait. This is during the time of they're coming a little bit later. So this would have been Wyndham and Rotundo are probably on this list. Wyndham and Rotundo, they are number three. So Sheik and Volkov? Sheik and Volkov. It actually, I do not see them on here. Okay. I was about to give you number seven, which is Ivan Koloff and Nikita Koloff. Interesting. Interesting. So we got the Road Warriors. We got those. So the Midnight Express have to be on this list. Midnight Express are number six. Who's number two? I don't think we said number two. No, we haven't. And I, you would might get this one if you were pressed, but it is Dusty Rhodes and Manny Fernandez. Wow. Fascinating. <laughs> number four is the fabulous ones of Stan oh. Lane and Steve Kern. Are the Fantastics on there? Oh, yeah. the That actually is the Fantastics. You got, or no, or you're asking about this. Are they, yeah, because the fabulous ones are a different team. So, Oh, the fabulous ones isn't Stan Lane and Steve Kern? That's Stan Lane and Steve Kern, but then there's the Fantastics, Bobby Fulton and Tommy Rogers. Oh, yes. they No, they're not on this list. You would think they are because you got Black Bart and Ron Bass is number eight. <laughs> Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel are oh, number flyers. nine. And number 10 is Coco Ware and Norvell Austin. The pretty young things. <laughs> it's funny when you go back in time sometimes how, you know, years can almost mix together or you forget who was in a certain time. Who would you say is the most popular wrestler? Because they have this different than the top. Well, in this era, it's probably Hulk Hogan. He's number two. <laughs> Dusty Rhodes? He's number three. What? Oh, okay. This time period, I'm going to guess what they have listed. And they might be right. Magnum TA. Magnum TA is sick. What the fuck? <laughs> Andre? Andre not even on the list. Jimmy Superfly Snooker. It, he is actually number eight. It's actually Ooh. Carrie Von Eric. And I think yeah, I want to say that this is sympathy still from David, but Kevin Von Eric is number seven. So I don't think they, I don't know how like one would get that much more sympathy than another. I don't know. I mean, the problem is it's all, this is during the regional times too. And these magazines, you know, they would do their own thing. So like, yeah, Carrie was extremely popular. Like all the Von Erics in Texas and in Israel where, you know, world-class was shown. And I'm sure in elsewhere too, but I don't think you could put the popularity they had like on a national level when you're comparing it to guys like Dusty and Hogan, even Magnum. But that would be my opinion. Yeah, I was surprised to see. I was surprised to see those rankings. Now, if you had to guess most hated, yeah, you're you're not even going to get number one. So, who would you guess is number two on the? List? I would have guessed Rowdy Piper would be on this list somewhere. Mm. <laughs> you would be wrong. Ric Flair has to be on this list somewhere, then. All right. Um, we might have to throw out this list. PG All Walker right. is number one. Oh, Chris. That's why I said you're not going to get number one. Number two is Chris Adams. Okay. Yeah. He was hated in Texas. Yeah. He was Wahoo McDaniel. 
four was Big John Stud. Okay. And I, I'm going to leave this list alone. I That just has no credibility. Let's do one that would be easy. Top 10, WWF, 1985. Who do you got? Number one's Hogan. Number He's one is champ. definitely. 85. Okay. Somewhere on this list is Junkyard Dog. Junkyard Dog is number seven. Okay, Andre. I don't know if he's suspended yet, but I'm thinking Andre's on this list. He's not on this list. Okay, he's suspended. So Jimmy Snooker, would he have been around this Jimmy time? Jimmy Snooker's number six. Six. Okay. Oh, Tito Santana. Tito Santana, number three. Number three. Oh, this all right. This is that popularity. This is his top wrestlers, right? Yeah, this might be like where they are ranked in relation to the top. Because it has Hogan listed as champion, and then it's got one through ten below it. Greg Valentine. Greg Valentine, number one. Yeah, he's Intercontinental Champ. Tito Santana's three. Okay, so we had uh, just your dog, Iron Sheik. Iron Sheik, not on the list. Nikolai Volkov. Not on the list, surprisingly. King Kong Bundy had to be on the list. Not on the list. (laughs) Nice. Big John Stud. I guess he's on here. He's number five. Ken Patera? Was he busy? Patera, he's number four. McDonald's. Okay, so he hadn't destroyed McDonald's yet with a boulder. All right. <laughs> so now you got number two, eight, nine, and ten. Roddy Piper is number two. Mr. Wonderful Paul Horndorf is number eight. All right. What is left? Nine and ten. Nine and ten. All right, getting in this time period here. I don't know. Do we have Ricky Steamboat in WWF yet? Nope. So he's not. I'll just give them to you. So nine is Bob Orton Jr. Ten is Jesse Ventura. Oh wow, I wouldn't have got Jesse. Okay. I'm looking through some other lists. That just the one list that threw me off was the most populous because that just didn't seem to necessarily line up with like what you'd think, and that was another thing with magazines especially around this time is they were able to you know kind of fudge their own facts a little bit and create the narrative they wanted to yeah absolutely yeah that's the thing these are kayfabe magazines they kind of did their own thing and I, I'm pretty sure they just made up interviews sometimes. You know, this was all storyline, a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And speaking of kayfabe magazines, we have it listed this week, but we're going to save it for next week when AJ Strange Brew is actually here because I've been sitting on the women's 150 for a little bit. And AJ is such a fan of ladies wrestling. I wanted to get into it with him a little bit. So we will save that for next week. We also have the big, the tag team issue of, PWI is very close to coming out and there is a lot of stuff going on in wrestling right now that we want to talk about Randy in the comments here. And this is kind of another thing we were going to get to Dave, AJ and Chevy will be at Bellator tonight, taking in the fights and stay tuned to our YouTube. We'll have plenty of shorts up from it. We'll have shots from the event and snuck a couple of events in on us this week. We've got Final Battle, which really felt like it crept up on us. And Wednesday night, they did a lot to, like, fill out this card. I was not, like, really looking forward. I'll be honest with you. There's some fine stuff on this, but I I was kind of like, okay, there's a lot going on this weekend. I might skip this one. No big deal. It just wasn't. Like, you know, Shane Taylor coming back, pretty cool, but not, like, blowing me away. I've seen Yuta and Garcia. It'll be a good match. Claudio and Jericho will be a good match, but again, I didn't feel compelled because I just feel like there hasn't been this really big push of Claudio lately. I just haven't anything he's done. But when they announced that we were getting FTR and the Briscoes in a double dog power match, I was like, you assholes. Now you're making me have to go see this because I want to see that. They've had the best matches. NXT deadline, Randy brought up in the comments too this weekend. I'll be honest with you. I'm curious about NXT deadline, but this 
whole thing is kind of reminding me of they used to have that King of the Mountain thing and TNA where they had to go to the penalty box. And then also WWE had those scramble matches where people were like, getting the pens. It's kind of like it's it's just a lot going on here. I don't know. Like it doesn't give me a good vibe. Like it makes me think this is going to be like kind of like a little too crazy. But because it is so crazy, I am curious. Like I do want to know how this plays out. But yeah, we'll see. I am more interested in Ring of Honor Final Battle mainly because they added that Briscoes FTR dog collar match. That's that's got me hooked. Yeah, th- that's been like the issue with AEW. It seemed is that. ROH has been kind of something they fit in from time to time. And I would say most people's anticipation for this event wasn't huge until they announced this dog collar. And an interesting thing you brought up with NXT, what was the last new match creation that actually worked? Because King of the Mountain is like the most maligned. I would it be would it be like Hell in a Cell? <sighs> Hold on. First off, uh, this comment. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that question after this. Yeah, that, that, that caught me. What do, um, think, um, what do you think would be the last really good new match? Money in the Bank is something I still like to this day. I like the concept. I don't. It's not always executed well, but I still like the concept. I still get excited for Money in the Bank. Hell in a Cell is a good one. The Elimination Chamber, actually, I still think has some credibility. That did come after Hell in a Cell, I believe. So okay. that, you know, that might be it. I do like the win pods. But if, you know, honestly, the truly last best, like, new match to get. And we are picking WWE matches here, by the way. So we'll give them credit for this. But this goes to Pat Patterson to me. The Royal Rumble. All right. Which obviously came out in the 80s. But, like, as far as, like, well, late 80s. But, like, I think that's my favorite style matchup. I think it's because they do it once a year, really. You know, with very few exceptions. There are exceptions. But once a year. But, like, like you know, like that style of matchup where it's built like a Super Bowl. Almost. I enjoy that. And I think where you really run into issues is when your match has a lot of rules that go into it, that makes it confusing because then you're less enjoying the match and just trying to keep up with the rules. Does this fall within it? Like, does this work for us? You know, that kind of stuff. I agree. Let's get to Randy's comment here because maybe Rampage should be two hours. And (laughs) I really like the one hour format. I just feel like they've shot themselves in the foot with where it falls necessarily time-wise during the week. Like 10 p.m. on a Friday isn't ideal. And even though you may have already been watching SmackDown, that's another hour of what's become like B-show matches since then. So if they were going to go to two hours, they would definitely have to work on the format, do something different to spice it up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they need to get it's just it doesn't feel must watch to me right now but you know neither does monday night raw anymore like triple h kind of had it going for a little while but now i feel like it's kind of dragged again really the two my two favorite shows have been smackdown and AEW dynamite i feel like they're consistent and what do those have in common there are two main shows that have quality matches and they're two hours so raw's too long and in the situation with rampage it's not too long but it's just there's nothing there that I feel I think you hit it. To, I think part of it's a time slot, but also they haven't got me anything where I feel compelled. I have to watch, you know, like they had CM Punk come back on Rampage at one. Point. You know, we're a long way from that. Yeah, tonight has maybe the most interesting Rampage with Moxley taking on Takeshita. 
and going into final battle could also be interesting but you're right there's not a ton on there that is like must watch just change the subject here a little bit because i wanted to get this in before we left today you had talked about there was a tag team issue coming up with pro wrestling illustrated and just on the cover uh, we talked about this in a friend group that we're in and it got a little bit of feedback which i like but the cover basically number one you know they're showing the usos on the cover so that's gonna happen we'll talk about that too but these tweets that they put on the cover like dax harwood did paul Heyman write this issue because it's full of lies the briscoes imagine if we weren't banned from tv usos my ass and then the oh, Usos. Yeah, that was that was like a meme that got out, right? Where it had right. the cover shown, and then they put these yeah. comments on it. Yes. And then the Usos, a lot of salty-ass tag teams there, huh? We the ones. Now, I thought this was great that these teams were all playing off of this and arguing. I thought it was great for the magazine. And I was saying, and our group of friends did, I really wish all these three teams were under one roof because I think these might be the three best teams out there right now. For me personally... It's FTR. I know Jake, a friend of ours, agreed with that. And Jake St. John, friend of the show, author. And I know Mike Flynn said, no, he thinks it's the Usos. And he, you know, they both had these legitimate reasons why and what they love. And I, I think it's great. Like, I love this kind of discussion. I'm excited about, you know, some of these teams that are in wrestling now. And I'm glad this is one thing definitely with Vince gone. I think that there's this chance for tag team wrestling to be big in WWE again. I think AEW has always put an emphasis on tag team wrestling. And I'm hoping that maybe the Briscoes will have a platform that they can be on soon enough because they should be. Yeah, that's one thing that I believe Tony Khan said he's going to be addressing the ROH situation Saturday night. So what do you if you have what is your guess as to where ROH lands? This is so hard. Part of me thinks it'd be, it'd be part of like Fight TV or something like that. You know, I'd, I'd love it to be a part of HBO Max. Or something like that. You know, something a little different, part of some premium package. I'll just throw it out there. I'll say HBO Max. But I have no idea. I'm thinking it's going to be part of, like, something to do with TBS and TNT. and F. But HBO is part of that. So we'll say HBO Max. Yeah, I was going to say most likely not fight. Because since Tony Khan has purchased Ring of uh, Honor, their events have come off fight. And they've been mostly on the bleacher. HBO Max would be an awesome place for it. I would like to go there. I'm hoping my guess it I'm going to say it's going to take the rampage slot mm-hmm. and rampage is going to become something else. Okay. Rampage, interesting point. MLW is on pro wrestling TV and sure. I think pro wrestling TV works great for MLW. Yeah. I don't know if that's where ring of honor would necessarily land because they almost feel like too big a thing, even though they're not right. treated like to land. There. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I would think that because it's Tony Khan back at them, because they're associated with AEW town and AEW is on national TV and you got guys like Jericho and Danielson, I would expect ring of honor to have a bigger platform than pro wrestling TV. I love that there is a pro wrestling TV. I'm glad that MLW's on there. But I wouldn't expect Ring of Honor to be there. That would be quite a coup for pro wrestling TV, I think, if they actually got that. That would be good for them. But my guess is Tony Khan's going to want it on something. I could have saw this going on the zone, but Impact Wrestling just announced that they're going to be on the zone. So that kind of makes me lean into something else. And I, I'm going to go with HBO Max because I really don't know. I know they're part of the Turner family. So I, I'm really just having a hard time seeing where else they could land. I think you get them on a streaming service like that. And other than your idea, maybe, like you said, maybe it's going to be Ring of Honor Rampage 
you know, and maybe we're going to have, you know, exclusively Ring of Honor on Turner. That would be another way to do it. And honestly, with the ratings currently that Rampage has, and this isn't an insult, you're not really losing anything. So you could do something different. They're probably still going to get the same ratings and you might even be able to build it. Definitely. Now, like Dave said, we have a big interview today at two o'clock. We're very excited to be bringing you Waiting and Andrew Thompson from Post Wrestling. And we've actually got some big interviews lined up for this coming week. We have Alex Red, the owner of Atomic Revolutionary Wrestling, ARW out of Florida. If you don't follow either Alex or ARW, definitely check them out because it's just a big company that I've had my eye on for a while. And I see the hustle that Alex not only puts into his regular job, but also to ARW. So it's going to be great to talk to him. We've got independent star Alec Price. We're going to have, we're going to be talking about the coming week. And yeah. we are very happy about that. We have Dustin Waller's tag team partner of Kylon King that I have to nail a time down for. But we're getting a, we're bringing you a lot of interviews for the end of the year. That we're very excited about. And if you're watching to see my family, it's good. And if you're watching this, please tune in to Way and Andrew because we're going to be doing a live 531 on top wrestling moments of the year. And we're going to answer Randy's question before we go out. Do you think Sasha Banks is going to AEW? That's a definite no. I don't. There's talks of her popping up at Wrestle Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And I think with the new management team that's in at WWE, she'd be much more comfortable going back there and maybe being able to do these other ventures that she was looking for. Yeah, Sasha Banks, I would agree with Joe. I don't think she ends up in AEW, although it is interesting, I will say this, that Soraya has a mystery tag team partner that they felt to need to announce isn't going to be on a show until the LA Forum, which is like three weeks, maybe a month away. So that would lead me to think there maybe is a possibility there's a big match, a big partner. But who do you who do you think her partner is going to be? That's the thing, right? Like, I don't think it's Sasha Banks because I think Sasha Banks is going to get the money from WWE. But I think maybe she wants to do something in Japan because she's talked about that. So who are our options left then? It's out there. It's a free agent. God, did you come up with anybody? I've got one and I'm like a thousand percent. This is going to be the pick. OK, tell me what it is. Soraya's mom. Oh, wow. She I still never... wrestles. OK. She was Featured when Soraya was in Shine, she, I believe, did like shots there and Mm -hmm. getting it it would just be a good story. And you're not bringing in her mom to like be a part of the roster. It's like a one time team up. And it's a good way, I think, to get some attention on the forum show. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I don't know if that's what they're doing, but I like it. That's good. We'll see. We're taking three point shots to end the show today. So thank you for joining us. And we will see you again at two. All right, so that wraps us up for this week. Thank you again for listening to the Working Fans Podcast. So as always, you can find us on Twitter at Fans Working. Our Facebook page is Working Fans Wrestling Pod. We have email where you can reach out to us and let us know what you think also. That's Working Fans Wrestling Pod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Working Fans Wrestling underscore pod. And then as always, please continue to listen to us on Anchor.fm, Google Podcast. Spotify, 
Breaker, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, all your major platforms. If you're following us on Apple Podcasts, which we are also on now, and YouTube, please make sure you subscribe and give us a five-star rating. It helps us bring you these podcasts where we get to talk to you and talk with you every week. 